So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 27. We will be looking at this chapter, a few verses in uh, chapter 28 as well, continuing our study of this book and now the life of David. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would uh, bless the hearing and the reading of your word, that it would cut us even to our very souls, that it would convict us of our sins, that it would lead us more and more to your truth, sanctifying us as we hear this truth. Um, we pray again that you would just mold our hearts and our minds after your will and after your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And so as I came to this text this week, um, and just considering the week, and I began to read quite a bit on foster families and adoptive families. A friend of mine is actually um, bringing a foster child into their home, and so it kind of piqued my interest on reading some of this and just kind of figuring out what's the foster system like and some different things that are going on. They're giving this this child who had been who's in a pretty rough situation, hoping to give them a good home, give their parents some time to some time to work through some issues that they've had, some personal kind of bad decisions they've made. I've thought a lot about this, a lot about the children who are a part of the foster system. We've had several of them at our school as well, and de- and had to dealt with them. And over the years in my youth ministry, I've had several that I've talked to, and you get to know them and their stories. They're usually very interesting, uh, not in a good way. They've had uh, very um, interesting lives to be so young. Um, And there have even been a few that I've talked to that have even turned on their parents. They've lashed out at the people that they're supposed to have trusted in, that the ones they should have trusted in. And so what's the reasoning behind this? Why would they do that? Why do these kids who have nothing, who have a terrible situation, they have this family that wants to bring them in and take care of them, why do these kids then lash out against these parents? Well, consider their situation. The ones who were supposed to keep them and sustain them didn't want to, were were unable to for some reason, so now they get a set of foster parents, which by definition aren't theirs, and so at their most basic level, they've had some trust destroyed, and so now they're afraid to trust anyone. It makes sense. This survival mode kind of kicks in, and they just kind of feel like they're barely living, even though they have everyone and everything around them who's trying to help them. Rather than running to the ones that have agreed to help them and keep them safe, They run away, they push away, sometimes even violently, and it's not good. And so as I read the passage this week, David's actions made me think a lot about a foster child. David, who had experienced the covenantal blessings of his heavenly father, now decides to forget those blessings and to run away. And this is a hard passage for us because... It doesn't really make any sense. It didn't make any sense to me reading this in the context of the whole book. Uh, Everything that we've seen so far gives us indication that David has no reason to run away from anyone. 
we, the audience, see that David is well taken care of and should never have any doubts or concerns. However, from his end, he doesn't see it that way, so he runs. Now, there's some good associations with that that we'll make, so we'll consider those ideas as we go to this text as well. But the main idea that I want us to consider is that since we, as Christians, have been made a part of the family of God through the work of Christ, we should never seek or run to anyone else but Him. We should rest in the safety and the comfort of our Lord Jesus. And so with that, I want to look at two ideas from this text, forgetting the blessings of God and then remembering the work of God. With that, let's read the text together, 1 Samuel 27, and then the first few verses of chapter 28. Let's stand together today as we read from God's Word, relatively short chapter from the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 27, beginning at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man of his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, I have found, If I have found favor in your eyes... Let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure the land of Egypt, or to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land, and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and would come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jehemalites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about about us and say, David, so has David done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. 
So just a bit of review. Last week we had David's final interaction with Saul. They will not meet each other again. Of course, David didn't know that, which is why he's thinking, or what he's thinking here. It's why he runs. We know that because we know the end of the story, which I think brings up a good point. Knowing the end of the story helps to bring perspective that someone in the middle of the story doesn't really have. The idea is going to be helpful going forward, I think, in this text, particularly as we go forward thinking about our own lives. David is the anointed king of Israel, yet he is waiting for the outcome of Saul's story. He's waiting for Saul to finish up his reign before he he begins his, and this still is happening. Obviously, we're going to continue with Saul's story for the, in the next couple of chapters, seeing what he his, kind of how he finishes his reign and his life. He has consigned himself, David has, to waiting for the Lord's timing when it comes to Saul. That's why this episode might seem a bit surprising to us, David running off into the land of the Philistines. And so I think it's helpful because it reminds us that even the best among us are still lacking when it comes to any kind of consistency in our morality. We have good times and we have bad times. What's good one day is bad the next, not because morality changes, but because we do. And so for David here, we see that kind of shift in his own life. And so that, that brings us to our first point, forgetting the blessings of God. Look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. What indication have we been given thus far in this story to believe that David was in any trouble at all when it came to Saul and his armies? None. So we should be given some sort of immediate pause when we read this verse, right? It kind of bothers us. David, who has been taken care of without fail and even has prospered, while he's run for his life, is now acting as if he's afraid. You know, I've never been chased with my life on the line, so I don't know what's going on through his head, but surely he should have been able to rest on the promises that he had been given up to this point, right? I mean, it makes sense to us, being being the readers of this text, that, hey, David, it's obviously going to turn out okay for you. Everything's been turning out okay for you. You'll be fine. He's taking care of his men as well. Think about it that way. He's moving his men into the Philistine area. Why? Because they're fugitives along with him and their families. This isn't just um, a giant army or a 600-man army. This is a 600-man army and their families as well. And so this isn't just men. This is when women, children, all of their livestock and all of that's kind of moving through this area. David is looking out for all of his people, and I think that shows his strength as a leader, just to compliment him here, and his instincts as a shepherd, of course, moving in here, keeping all of his people together, keeping them safe. And so what does he do once he gets to the land of the Philistines? He bargains with the king, with Achish, for a place that he and his people can kind of live undisturbed. 
It's a way to keep David happy if you're Achish, to keep him out of the city, which would be good, right? Because David is uh, probably best kept at a safe distance if you were once his enemy. So David and his people take up safety in this place called Ziklag, which is in the southern part of Judah, really far down in the south. If you look in any kind of Bible maps, you'll see it way down there, which we are told belongs to Judah from this day forward. Pretty interesting. So, was David right to do this? This I think that's our big question, right? Saul has quit chasing him at this point, we're told. Did David do the right thing? Again, consider the promises of God to David. Consider the anointing that David had as the future king of Israel. Consider that the people of God were given the land as a fulfillment of the promise. And David is now wandering away from it. Much less a land, but more from her people into the lands of the enemy, the pagans, the Philistines, who held to multiple other gods. And we've read those stories throughout this, this, this uh, book. And so it might be easy for us to consider this if we put ourselves in his shoes. Let's think about it from our perspective. I think it's very easy for us to consider some of the circumstances in our lives and think, where is God? Why hasn't he answered? Maybe David was thinking that too, even though David was obviously being taken care of. From the outside, the onlooker can easily see the blessings of God in any person's life, right? We all know folks who are struggling financially or spiritually or with their, maybe their marriage is in trouble or their kids are struggling. Something is going on in their lives, whatever it is, something's happening. But from their vantage point, they look at their lives and they think, wow, it couldn't get any worse. Think about it from what David says. Now I shall perish from my situation. You've heard people that that talk like this, that think like this. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to enter another Savior. I should escape to Gath, is what David said, because Israel was not going to save him, so he made up this Savior, and he went to the Philistine king, whatever it is for us. God is not going to help me, therefore I shall escape to fill in the blank. But when we look at that situation from the outside, when I think of a struggling friend or someone who's, who's struggling, from my vantage point, I see the blessings of God in their lives. I see the, behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We always see those blessings for others, but do we always see them for ourselves? Are we like that foster child? that I talked about at the very beginning, that doesn't realize the blessings that they have, that someone has taken them into their home and decided they're going to take care of them, even though they're not their own. We run from our Father in heaven, even after He would only give us blessings upon blessings, right? Granted, life is hard, and I'm not trying to take away from that. For David... He had the king of Israel chasing him, trying to kill him. 
This isn't just a single man, obviously. This is an entire country. This is a man who controls the country's armies. He is seeking him everywhere, and anyone who wants a favor from the king can turn him in, and we've seen that over and over again. Our situations may be hard, too. We struggle and we fight against the unknown, or we fight against the things that are known that are just too big for us to fight against, or they hit too hard when we do try to fight against them. So I don't want to minimize the difficulty of life. In fact, there's a sense in which we're always going to be mourning this earth. Romans 8 tells us that our spirits cry out and they long for the return of Jesus Christ when he will come and bring his people home and make everything right finally. But while, or while we wait for him, what promises do we have to hang on to here and now? Well, Romans 8 continues on and tells us that as well. It tells us that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, will he not give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Paul goes on and on. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. God has given us everything. He has withheld no blessing from us. So what do we do? We remember that we are not only safe, but we are made a part of the family of God. We are his children the children of the almighty creator of the universe. Since that is true, what do we do? We run to him. He will take care of us. He will meet our needs. There will be times when we're tempted to run to the arms of another. But King Achish in Gath is only bad news. Is there any good reason for David to run to him? The arms of another, in our case, will only ask us to do what? To compromise. And they can't possibly live up to the promises of God, the ones that he makes to us. And they can't possibly live up to their promises that they make to us, that they'll take care of us. Whatever this fake Savior is that we've made up, we need to run to our Heavenly Father who is ready, willing, who is able to receive even the most hasty of sinners, run to him, brothers and sisters, when you have need, rather than seeking out another. And so the next point then I want to look at is remembering the work of God. And so what does David do while he's there in Gath? Well, he goes raiding against the Philistines. He goes raiding against the raiders, so to speak, the enemies of God's people. And then he brings the spoil to Achish thus kind of tricking Achish into believing that he is going raiding against his own people. Achish actually thinks that he's going raiding against Judah. Well, how does he continue to know that? Why doesn't something leak and kind of let Achish in on the secret, right? Someone, something, someone would tell him at some point, right? No, because David kills every witness, every man, woman, child, dead. Achish is starting to trust in David, and he even calls him his eternal 
servant, his personal bodyguard before they go to war against Israel. David's out wrecking the enemies of the Lord while living in this foreign land. Even though he has become afraid and he's moved into this foreign land, he's still doing the work of the Lord. So this is a little bit of a consolation for us. And so I think there's a few things here for us to look at as well. First, I think it's important for us to not make a hero out of David. And if any text in the Bible reminds us of this, this one definitely does. He is no hero. He is flawed. We've been saying that and we've been seeing that from the beginning. And so we, it's not, this isn't new. But here we read that he's killing women and children in order to keep his disguise safe. He's in a place where he shouldn't be, and in order to keep himself and his men safe, he's killing everybody. Now, maybe there's some deep questions that we could talk here about, about the ethics of war, and was it wrong for David to do what he did, and maybe that's a good discussion, but it's not for this sermon. But I think we can all agree that David shouldn't have put himself in this position to begin with. He he and his poor decisions have led him to this place to have to do what he's been doing. So if we make a hero out of David, or any of the Bible's characters for that matter, we not only have to accept the good and the easy sides of them, the things that are easy about David, right? That he killed a bear with his bare hands and he killed Goliath and and it's, it's all well and good that he's kind of this musical little guy and he loves to play his instrument and he's, he's a man after God's own heart and all these things that we want to, uh, to love about him. But we also have to uh, accept the side of him that would strap on his sword and go kill a, go kill a farm or, uh, or go and slaughter women and children in order to keep his disguise safe. Consider some of the other heroes that we might make. What about the ones in the New Testament like Peter who cut off the ear of the temple guard who later in the New Testament wouldn't eat lunch with the Gentile Christians because he didn't want to be seen doing that by his Jewish friends. When regular men and women become our heroes, we begin to lose sight of Jesus. And so this is a grace, I think, that we're given in this text. It reminds us that David isn't Jesus. He needs Jesus just as much as we do. And I think second, we're reminded that even in difficulty, the type of difficulty that might drive us away for a time that might attempt to drive us away from the Lord for a time, even in those times, we should always be going after the Lord's work, at least at its most basic level. What does this look like in the lives of a Christian? Well, I regularly talk with Christian folks who are struggling at some level because of their, or with their faith, because of their lives, whatever may be going on in their lives. I did that when I was a pastor. I do that now as a teacher, maybe even more so sometimes. I always tell them, don't stop doing the basic things. Don't stop going to church. For instance, whatever you do, don't stop reading your Bible. Force yourself, force yourself if you have to. Don't stop praying. Don't start these, don't stop these normal and plain things of our faith. Why? Because sometimes doing the work of our faith will help us remember the promises that we have in the faith. Show me a Christian who has stopped going to church during the tough times of their lives, and I'll show you a Christian that is slowly 
slipping away from their faith. We all know what this looks like, sadly. We've heard them say it. You know, I'm just too sad to be in church right now. Maybe the church is their problem. I don't want to be there. Maybe. But, well, what I always tell them, and it's true, you're the problem, too. The church is where you'll hear about the solution, the only solution, Jesus Christ. If you aren't hearing about him, then go someplace that talks about him regularly. He is the solution to that problem. What about regular Bible reading, things like that? The Bible contains the promises of God, so of course we should keep it close to us. Well, I don't feel like reading my Bible right now. Who said anything about feelings? Christian that is struggling more than anyone needs to read the promises of God and see the promises of God. Listen to the Bible being read. Read it aloud to yourself. These aren't magic words. I'm not saying that. But they are the absolute truth. And sometimes it's good to get that into our system. All the time it is. And so please don't hear me uh, trying to make you feel guilty about not doing these things or whatever. That isn't the point here. Jesus is our righteousness, not our church attendance or our Bible reading. However, if you aren't regularly in the means of grace, what do I mean by that? Bible reading, church attendance, prayer, the sacraments. If you aren't regularly partaking of those things, then you should expect to be struggling in your life as a Christian. When life is hard, which it almost always is, you should be availing yourself to those regular, plain means of grace. The scriptures, prayer, hearing the word preached, sacraments, being together with his people. These are normal and regular things that we should always be doing. This is how God shows himself to us and how he heals our souls. How he leads us to repentance. He shows us our need to embrace Jesus Christ more and more. And so in conclusion, quickly, since we've been made a part of the family of God, let us then run to our heavenly father rather than the arms of another. He is always right there to remind us of his goodness and mercy. David would have been reminded of that, but he ran away. He will remind us constantly of his promises as we see them and read them and hear them. And most importantly with the Father, we are reminded of Jesus who upholds our weary heads, who gives us rest. Christians, let us run to Jesus Christ. He will give us rest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to the table together, as we come to feast upon this supper that you have laid out before us, again, we're reminded of this regular means of grace that you have given us, this regular reminder of your goodness, of your mercy to us, of your promises that we need in our lives so that we don't run to another. As we hear the word, as we see David, quote-unquote, one of the heroes of our faith. We're reminded that you are the hero of our faith. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith, and even David needed to turn to you. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds toward you, 
that we would run only to you when we need rest. It's in your name we pray. Amen.